Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana, Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Well, good morning. My name's Stephen Jones, and I'm on staff with Salt Company here, and it's great to be with you all. Uh, We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning. It's wild. Natalie and I, my wife, were talking this week, and it's like, man, we, this time last year in September is when we began kind of our process of looking for housing up here, and it's almost been a year, which is awesome. So we'll be in the Gospel of John this morning, continuing our series that we've been in several weeks now. And here's the thing about the Gospel of John. It's 21 chapters, and John explicitly states his purpose statement for the entire book. The entire reason why he wrote the book was John 20, verse 31. He says, I've written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life. That's the whole purpose of his gospel, the whole purpose that he wrote this account of the life of Jesus. And so everything inside this gospel brings us back to that purpose, that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing by believing in his name, we would have life. That is the reason for everything in this gospel, the stories, the teachings, everything. And the element that we're going to come across this morning, which are these seven signs. So the, God, the, the Apostle John wrote these seven signs, these extraordinary miracles that Jesus performed for the purpose of, of both demonstrating that Jesus was the Messiah and that it would leave, lead us to a place of believing in his name for eternal life. So that is the purpose of these seven extraordinary signs. We are going to look at the first of those seven signs today, and it's super simple. We just want to look at this sign and see how it demonstrates that Jesus is the Messiah and then see what it means to have life in his name. So the question that we're going to be asking the whole time is why was this the first sign? Why was this the way Jesus introduced himself? And now when you meet people for the first time or you're introducing yourself, you are incredibly intentional about the things that you choose to highlight because the things that you highlight in your introduction are the things that are so important to you. So a year ago, like I said, Natalie and I were coming up here starting our process of finding housing, of meeting people. And so I got to teach last September at Salt Company. And I told Cody, hey, I want to take the first eight minutes of my sermon on Thursday night and 
just introduce myself and talk about something that's super important to me that really is not connected to my sermon at all. It's not really even an introduction, introduction that gets us to a main point. I just want to introduce myself and talk about this thing that's incredibly important. So I took the first eight minutes of my sermon last semester or last, last September to only talk about how Natalie and I met and fell in love. Because I was like, if these students are going to know me, they have to know that one of the highest priorities in my life is my relationship with my wife. And if you go, don't get that, you're not going to understand the reason for so many of the decisions I make, the reason why I do things. You, you're not going to understand who I am. Because if you miss how I introduce myself, you're not going to get it. It's like, a, imagine this, if you were to plug your ears for the first eight minutes of my sermon last year and then try to make sense of all the things I was saying and all the decisions I was making, it would take you a while to perhaps figure out what was going on and why I was doing things. Because the way Jesus introduced himself to us and revealed himself to the world was so intentional. And if we miss it, we are going to be confused about who Jesus is and the relationship we're supposed to have with him. And I think that actually the, that you, that it is very possible that you have either missed the way he introduced himself to us or that you've been around Christianity for so long that you've forgotten how he introduced himself to us. And the reason why you've had confusion in your relationship with Christ or are confused why Christians do certain things is actually because you missed how he, how he introduced himself to us in the first place. It's as if you had your ears plugged with your fingers for the first five minutes of that conversation, and then you're trying to make sense of why he's asking you to do things or, or, or do certain things in your relationship with him. So if we can see how he introduced himself to us, why he introduced himself to us in that way, then it will bring us to the core of his mission, why he came to earth, and how that transforms all of our life. So John 2 is where we're going to be at to look at this first sign, an extraordinary miracle, but it was more than a miracle. It was a sign, a, a, a thing that was supposed to tell us about who Jesus was, and this was the first one. So John 2, Jesus turns water to wine. Um, before we get going, uh, Tim Keller is a pastor out in New York, and I've heard him teach on this passage so many times that uh, he has just so impacted my understanding of this passage. So if you come across any of his teachings, you'll hear some of the concepts from this morning in there. So John 2 is where we're going to be at looking at this first sign of Jesus. So John 2, 1 says this, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So Jesus' disciples head back to this wedding uh, in Jesus' home region of Galilee. Jesus' mother's there. Because Joseph isn't mentioned, many people think Joseph is dead at this point. And his disciples and Jesus head to this wedding. And they're celebrating, they're having a good time. And in the midst of this wedding celebration, a problem arises. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. So this problem emerges. They're celebrating, having a good time. A problem emerges that's potentially very embarrassing for this couple. I mean, think about the pressure that you have to have a great and excellent wedding, even in our society today, but even more so in their society, they had tremendous pressure to have an excellent wedding. I mean, imagine the embarrassment you would have if you ran out of food at your wedding and half your guests didn't get to eat. That'd be embarrassing. So much time and energy goes into the preparation of a wedding, and this problem was presenting a moment where they could be publicly humiliated and ashamed. Natalie and I totally judge weddings when we go to them. It's one of my favorite things to do at weddings, and yes, it probably is sinful, but whatever. 
But what we do is we sit there and we judge weddings and we've been to enough now that we label the wedding when we get into the car and we'll say, oh, that was the wedding that was awkwardly short, which it was from the time the groom walked in and the bridal party exited, it was 13 minutes, awkwardly short. Uh, and eight of those minutes, this, this wedding actually has two labels. Uh, it's the awkwardly short wedding and the wedding where the pastor talked about how terrible marriage was. It was, he's like, get ready for the trenches of marriage, sanctification, here it comes. It's like, okay, dude, like marriage is a good thing. Uh, the, so we label weddings. We're like, okay, that, that was the awkwardly short wedding or the wedding where the pastor talked about how awful marriage was for some reason at a wedding. Not what you do, man. There's pressure to have a good wedding and this couple is feeling it. And you can sense just the anxiousness that potentially could be rising in this couple as they begin realizing we could run out of wine and this would be an embarrassment. So Mary comes to Jesus and says this, they don't have any wine. And this statement is really one of those statements that's a request, right? It's a statement, but you know it's a request. My father-in-law yesterday was hanging out with my son, Jack, and he looks over at me at one point and says, Stephen, Jack has a dirty diaper. That's a fact, but it was a request. It was for sure a request. He's like, Stephen, you need to change this. It was a statement that was a request. So Mary makes this statement that's really a request, and here's how Jesus responds, verse four. What does that have to do with me, woman? Jesus asks, my hour has not yet come. Now, in the service, that looks pretty offensive, but in that culture, most commentators say that wasn't an offensive way or derogatory way to address his mother, but he looks at her and says, hey, this... What does this concern me? My hour hasn't come. Then Mary says something very confusing. She says, do whatever he tells you. My hour, this doesn't concern me. My hour hasn't come. Mary says, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. We'll come back to that interaction and try to figure out what's going on there. But so Jesus then turns to these servants and does this, verse six. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 to 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. So he looks at these, these jars that hold anywhere between 20 to 30 gallons a pop. He tells the servants, go take them, fill them up with water. So these servants are coming back. They're filled to the brim. Jesus, we don't see the snap of the fingers, in the, but snaps the fingers. Water changes the wine. He, the servants draw them out, take them to the head waiter. And this is the head waiter's response. Verse nine, when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he didn't know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior, but you've kept the fine wine until now. The head waiter's like, what is going on? I've never been to a wedding like this. Most times you bring out the good stuff first and then the cheap stuff later, but you've done the complete opposite. And I think he's saying this in a positive way. He's like, you're not a cheapskate. You gave good wine and then you brought out incredible wine. What on earth? Here's this couple that's facing public humiliation and shame because of their mistake. And then the groom gets credit for what Jesus had done. And he had created incredible wine. So the disciples see this in verse 11. It says this, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. The first of his signs. This is the way that Jesus reveals his glory, that he is the son of God. It is the first of his signs. And after seeing it, the disciples believe and are filled with wonder. 
It's amazing. And, God, and John tells us that these signs are the, for, for the purpose of us seeing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that it would lead to us believing in him. Now think about what happened. Jesus had anywhere from 120 to 100 gallons of water sitting in front of him. And in a flash, changed it to wine. That's amazing. Imagine the wonder of the servants. I mean, you see these jars. You're told by a man to go fill them with water. You carry the jar, fill it with water. You're the one who brings it back. You're the one that then draws it out. And lo and behold, it is incredible wine. What would your response be to the man who had done this? What would you, what would you do as the disciples, as, as they're following him, and you see a man do this. I think about the high V aisles of milk, like just, just gallons of milk sitting there. And imagine what you would do if you saw a man go, and it all switched to wine. Are you so familiar with these miracles that this is common in your mind? Have you become so familiar with the miracles of Jesus that you just fly past this and you lose the wonder of it? Imagine what it would be like to be there and 180 gallons of water are changed. And both the quantity and the quality of wine is amazing. It's astonishing. I mean, picture what 180 milk jugs would look like. What would you do? What would your response be if a man switched that into wine? Have you become so familiar with this story that is frequently told that you've lost the wonder of it, that you've lost the amazement of who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And this miracle proves that he has power over everything. What would your response be if you were the disciple? John says that you are to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. The disciples see this and are blown away. What happens to your level of commitment to Jesus when you see this? What happens to your level of trust in him for everything in your life when you see this? What happens to your, your level of worship and adoration and amazement at who Jesus is? I find myself being more in wonder at things that are humanly possible, like incredible passes by Patrick Mahomes. I'm a huge Chiefs fan, and I am regularly blown away by him. Do I find that more wondrous than Jesus turning 180 gallons of water into wine? Am I in a place of just wonder and adoration of who Jesus is, his majesty and power on display? And does that lead me to a place of belief, both initial belief, but even ongoing belief in who he is and what he can do and accomplish? These signs are recorded. John is such a simple book. We don't want to confuse it. It's such a simple book. He wrote these things down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you believe that to your core? that Jesus is the Son of God. So then the question is why? Why would this be the first sign? Signs were extraordinary miracles, but they weren't just miracles. They were things that tell us about who Jesus is and what he 
came to do? Why would this be the first one? Why would this, he going, him going to a wedding and a bride and groom facing embarrassment and he turns that wedding into an incredible party? Why would that be the first thing he'd, he would do? Is that the first thing you would do if you were Jesus? Like there's no crowd and 5,000 people. There's no water that he's walking on. There's no paralytic he's healing. The very first sign that he does is he turns water into wine and saves a couple from embarrassment and takes a wedding that really was kind of winding down and turns it into an incredible feast, an incredible celebration. Why would that be the first thing? Jesus made this his first sign so that you would know that Jesus came to bring joy into your life. Jesus came to bring joy into your life. Now, if I were to ask you, what did Jesus come to do? Many of us would say true things. We'd say Jesus came to forgive sins. Jesus came to die on the cross. Jesus came to be an example for us. Jesus came to be king of the world. Those things are all true. But how many of us would say at the heart of his mission, Jesus came to bring you joy? And that is the thing that I think so many of us have either never realized or have forgotten that that was how Jesus introduced himself and leads to the confusion that we have in our relationship with him. Why, what about this story shows us that Jesus came to bring joy? Well, first, wine in the Old Testament was very symbolic of the blessing, of prosperity, of, of joy, of gladness. Psalm 104 says the, glad, the wine makes us glad. And in Isaiah 25, it talks about the aged wines and the choice meats that will be in heaven in the end times. Jesus in parables talks about the banquet feast of heaven that is coming. John later in Revelation will say that awaiting us in heaven is this, this banquet feast of the lamb, the wedding of the lamb. All throughout the Bible, weddings and wine just are this symbol, symbol of joy and gladness and blessing and fulfillment and satisfaction. So Jesus coming to this wedding in Cana really was symbolic of pointing us to the wedding that awaits us, the feast that he was going to provide a way to, and this wine representing the blessing and this, this joy Jesus came to bring joy. The first miracle that he did, the first sign that he did was to take a wedding and make it an incredible wedding, to point us to the feast that awaits us, to point us to the reality that he came to bring joy into our life. Is that how you see Jesus? Do you see him as someone whose goal was to bring joy into your life, to provide a way for you to the feast of heaven? Instead of letting the couple experience the shame of them, their mistake, they got the joy of the miracle. Have you forgotten that? If we were to look at a tape, me and you sit down and watch a tape of this last week, what would be the thing that we'd conclude you were looking for your joy in? What would we see as the thing that your joy this week was based on? What circumstances? What is the thing that we would see and identify as the thing that you ultimately were hoping for joy in? We may say that our joy is in Jesus, but during your week, what actually is your joy based on? Now, here's the test. Here's the question. What is the thing that if you never got or that you lost, you're not sure you'd be capable of having joy? What's the thing in life that if you lost it or you never got it, you just aren't sure if you'd be capable of having joy. Is it, man, if, if I never get married, I don't know if I'm going to have joy. Is it, 
if this fertility treatment doesn't work out, I, I don't know if I can have joy. Is it if, if my work hires someone that turns out to be a better, more skilled person in this area and they get the promotion that I've worked for years for, am I going to be able to have joy? If my kids don't turn out and rebel, make me look bad, am I going to be able to have joy? What is the thing that if you lost or never got, you aren't sure you'd be able to have joy? Look, all those things are good things and gifts from God, marriage and kids and work. All those things are actually even supposed to be sources of fulfillment and joy. The problem happens when we expect those things to be our ultimate source of joy. Why? Because if we expect our ultimate source of joy to come from those things, we will be crushed. Because at some point or another, those things will not be able to bear the full weight of our need for eternal joy, and they will fail us and we will be crushed will be devastated. They are good. They should make us happy. But if you expect your eternal joy to be found in those things, you will be crushed. When you understand that Jesus came to bring you joy, two things will happen. One, it will free you from placing your eternal expectation of joy on things that were never meant to carry it. And you won't be crushed when they fail you. And second, it will completely transform your relationship with Christ. It will completely transform the way you live as a Christian. When Jesus is your ultimate joy, the source of your fulfillment, it changes everything. Look, you can be disciplined enough to get in your Bible every day. You can pull yourself up by the bootstrap. You can convince yourself by your hard work to do things for Jesus. But at some point or another, you're going to run out of steam if you are not ultimately motivated by delight and joy in Jesus. But when you're motivated by joy in Jesus, it will change everything. You'll be drawn into his word by a delight in the relationship you have with him. You'll be moved to share your faith out of just an overflow of the joy you're experiencing in him. You'll be moved to sacrifice all sorts of things in your life in view of the sacrifice he has made for you. It will completely transform everything in your life when you truly find your greatest joy in him. But until that happens, as a Christian, you will be on this duty-ridden treadmill of performance and demand. And at some point or another, you're going to run out of steam. But when you're motivated by the joy that we have in Jesus, everything in your life changes. So how do we find our greatest joy in Jesus? That is the mission statement of our church, helping people find their greatest joy in Jesus. We think, yeah, we could have the ability to conform you in a certain way behaviorally, but that wouldn't be lasting change. What we actually think is that if we first and foremost help you find your greatest joy in Jesus, it will completely transform your life. So how do we do that? How does Jesus bring joy into our life? How can we find our greatest joy in Jesus? We get the answer to that and what this story, what this sign ultimately points us to, and that is in those, that interaction with Jesus's mom. So look back at verse 3. In this interaction with Jesus' mom, we get the, the clue, the answer to how we find our greatest joy in Jesus. So let me read these verses again. Verse 3 says this, When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What's that have to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Then she turns and says, Do whatever he tells you. Now this is confusing because on the surface it looks like Jesus says, Hey, this doesn't concern me. It's not my time. 
If that's the case, then why does Mary turn to the servants right after he says that and says, do whatever he tells you? Right? It's like, mom, did you hear me wrong? Like, I just said, it, this doesn't concern me. It's not my time. Why would he, why would Mary be so confident that Jesus is going to do this? The answer is in three things from this text. One, the interaction with his mother itself. Two, the reference to the hour. And three, the jars of purification. So first, as you go through John, you're going to see over and over again, Jesus mentioned this, this hour, my hour. And until you get to John 13, the night before his death, he will finally say, my hour has come. Every time Jesus uh, speaks of his hour, he has on his mind his death. So then the question is, where during Jesus's hour does Mary show up again and these jars show up again? And the answer is John 19. In fact, in John 19, it's the only other interaction that John records of Mary. The only other place that Mary shows up in John's gospel is John 19, at the hour of Jesus' death. So we're going to end our time in John 19. If you can turn there, great, John 19, 25. I'm going to read the second story of Jesus interacting with his mom in the gospel of John. So Jesus is on the cross, and here's how verse 25 starts. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was this preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may believe his testimony is true and he knows he's telling the truth. The one other time Jesus interacts with his mother is at the hour of his death. Why were they talking about this in John 2? It's because on Jesus' mind was his coming hour when he would interact with his mom again. I mean, think about the parallels here. In John 2, you have an interaction with his mother. In John 19, you have an interaction with his mother. In John 2, you have the people running out of wine. In John 19, Jesus says, I thirst. In John 2, a jar of purification of water was sitting there. In John 19, a jar of sour wine was sitting there at the foot of the cross. In John 2, there was water and there was wine. In John 19, there was blood and there was water. In John 2, in response to the sign the disciples had just saw, they believed. In John 19, in response to the sign that the soldiers just saw, they believed. In John 2, Jesus intervened on behalf of the couple so that they wouldn't face the public humiliation of the shame of their mistake. In John 19, Jesus intervened on our behalf so we wouldn't face the shame of our public, shame of, our hum of sin. 
In John 2, the groom took credit for what Jesus had accomplished. In John 19, Jesus says, it is finished. He accomplished and we get the credit of what he has done. What was different? The jars. In John 2, there were jars that were for Jewish purification, washing on the outside. In John 19, there was a jar full of sour wine. In John Two, the people drank the wine that had been changed. In John 19, Jesus drank the sour wine sitting next to the cross so that we wouldn't have to drink the sour wine of our sin. But instead, all that would be left for us was the cup of joy at the banquet feast of the Lamb, the wedding day that we await where the church meets its true bridegroom, Jesus. Jesus drank the cup of the sour wine at the foot of the cross so that all that was left for us was the cup of joy and gladness and that there was a way to the feast. Jesus came to bring you joy. There's this random memory that's in my head of Isla, my daughter, uh, when she was one. And it's, it's like just this simple interaction we were having where I was feeding her blueberries. And I don't know if it's snack time or what, but I'm just feeding her blueberries. And we're having so much fun. We're laughing, feeding her blueberries, and we get to the last one. And I hold it up, and it's just this big old blueberry that looked awesome. And I'm like, Isla, the last blueberry. And she, her eyes get wide, and she's so excited. And she's like, like, so excited. And as I turn the blueberry, there's mold on the backside. And I knew that if I gave Isla this blueberry, it would make her sick, and it wouldn't fulfill the desire that she had inside of her for that blueberry. And so as a loving father, I refused to her the blueberry. There are so many blueberries in this world that hold out the promise of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. But God, as our loving father, can see the backside of that blueberry has mold on it. And he refuses to give that which will make you sick. Instead, he took the sour blueberry. He took the sour wine so that all that was left for us was the true source of eternal joy. Guys, there are things that in this world you are longing for and hoping will bring you joy and satisfaction. But God in his eternal perspective knows that those things will not ultimately satisfy you. They might be good gifts. They might bring some level of joy, but they can't handle the weight of your eternal joy. And so Jesus went to the cross, taking the shame of our sins so that what we could get in return was credit for what he had accomplished. And that we could have eternal joy in him. If you miss this introduction, if you miss the way Jesus introduces himself to us, nothing in Christianity is going to make sense to you. But when you see that Jesus came to bring joy It'll move you in a place of transformation and in a response to the grace that we've received. Obedience to him will become delight. It'll change everything. Jesus took the cup of sour wine so that all that was left for us was the cup of joy at the eternal feast of the lamb. When you get that, it transforms everything about your life. Let's pray. God, I so often forget this. I so often forget that my joy is not found in things here, but is ultimately found in you. 
And God, that waiting for me is the eternal joy of the feast of heaven where I am in relationship with you fully. And God, I pray that you would help us see that the things of this world may hold out the promise of being sources of joy and fulfillment, but they just, they don't. They're good things, but they just can't handle the eternal need we have for fulfillment and joy. But God, you sent Jesus to come to this wedding in Cana to show us that there was another wedding that we were created for and that there was a different kind of wine that we're to drink, and that's the wedding between the church and Christ and the the wine of the cup of heaven. And God, I pray that that reality would shape us into people that seek you, that seek to find our greatest joy in you, and that that, in doing so, would transform everything about our lives. God, help us not to be distracted by these blueberries that we think will give us joy, but end up having mold on them. God, help us to see Jesus as the one who drank the sour cup of wine on our behalf, who provided for us purification, true purification, so that we could be reconciled to you with the hope of an ultimate relationship with you where we will find joy. God, I pray that as we find that, that it would transform everything in our life, that we'd be people that can face hardship, that we'd be people that can walk with contentment in this life, that we could be people that engage in our relationships out of love and not out of expectation. God, remind us of what Christ has done on our behalf so that we don't have to face the shame of our sin, but got the credit of what he's accomplished. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.